I think that people can feel a kind of paralysis when they think that a problem is overwhelming. And yet there are things that we can all do because when every citizen makes small changes, that adds up to a huge change. Welcome to How We Win. All over the country, people are doing extraordinary things. We don't agonize, we organize. We've won some battles, but we still have more to do. Today, we talk about the attack on Roe versus Wade and its chances with the now conservative-leaning Supreme Court, the clowns in Congress, and what happens when a city hits a vaccination milestone. And joining us for our interview is California Assembly member and environmental champion, Laura Friedman. We get a behind-the-scenes look at COP26 and learn some practical ways that we can help save our planet right from our homes. I'm Steve Pearson. And I'm Mariah Craven. And And this this is How We Win. Big news of the week that I think everybody's going to be keeping an eye on is something we've been talking about for months, actually. And that is uh, the Supreme Court hearing Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization, which is is going to be the biggest challenge to Roe versus Wade and and like a generation. So uh, they're hearing this on Wednesday. This is a law brought about by the Republican-led Mississippi legislature that makes most abortions illegal after 15 weeks of pregnancy. Uh, So that's two months earlier than um, what Roe versus Wade allows for. So the law was enacted in 2018. It's never been implemented because it's been tied up in the courts since then. Mm -hmm. And this uh, Jackson Women's Health Organization, which is the, the organization named in the case, this is the last abortion clinic in the entire state of Mississippi. It is the only place to get an abortion in Mississippi. Um, they've presented evidence that viability, fetal viability is not an issue at 15 weeks. And that's sort of been the thing that has, has allowed them to keep operating. Um, so this case got on the Supreme Court docket in the fall of 2020. Uh, one month before Amy Coney Barrett mm. uh, was confirmed to the Supreme Court. So Mississippi and the folks that brought about this case and people who are eyeing it have been waiting for the exact right moment um, when they could have the Supreme Court listen to this case. And they basically said, we are trying to push back against Roe versus Wade. Um, and in the 1992 Planned Parenthood versus Casey decision. And basically, if the Supreme Court, which would probably decide on this case in June, if um, they allow Mississippi to do this, it essentially eclipses Roe versus Wade. You know, it, if this becomes the law of the land, it means that Roe versus Wade is not opening states, abortion providers, and women up to even more stricter laws and regulations. I mean, we like we see the one that was just passed in Texas, uh, right. which basically limits it to six weeks. So this is a big deal. Um, and it's what conservatives have been waiting for for a very long time. It's a huge deal. And uh, it's absolutely what conservatives have been working towards for a very long time. It's why... Uh, it's why Trump nominated these justices. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. And um, I don't I don't really know what to say about it other than I'm going to be watching it very closely um, and very nervously um, because we do have a stacked court right now. Right. And um, it doesn't favor us right now. Um, there, there's so many things we need to do to transform our government and Supreme Court uh, reform is uh, is high on that list. Um, although we don't hear about it all the time, you know, the number of justices has changed over the life of the Supreme Court, I think, four or five different times. It's not mm-hmm. unprecedented to add justices to the court. That's something that we could do. But it doesn't seem that the political will is there. Hmm. So uh, <laughs> my my historical knowledge of the Supreme Court is limited to cases that I get outraged about. Uh, what what would it what would it? I mean, for a while the court was really shitty, but in any event, what would it uh, what would it take for a Biden to add somebody to the court? Do you know? Yeah, well, um, and I'm not an expert on this either. Um, so with the full caveat, I don't know why anyone's actually listening to us talk about this. But um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if you just want to hear our opinions, um, no, I, uh, it would take getting rid of the filibuster to do it because um, mm-hmm. it would have to go through the Senate and um, and it would have to overcome the filibuster, which, of course, the Republicans uh, will not do that. Um, the Senate is where judges get nominated, right? So I mean, that's the answer to to so many things right now <laughs> is getting rid of the filibuster. So again, now we're looking at Mansion and Cinema once again, um, and uh, we need to reform, remove the filibuster for voting rights, um, which is also so important as we look at the midterms and this huge hill we have to climb to make sure that we stay in power. But yeah, D.C. statehood, uh, so we can get closer to having an actual representative government, especially in the Senate. So again, it boils down to the filibuster. The, the next thing that you wanted to talk about, okay, I was hesitant I never, about this. I didn't really this. want to talk about it. I think I so uh, sometimes, you, you know, I'm of the mind of you starve negative people of attention, they'll they'll go away. But- I think it's an important reminder that this that people like this exist and like the Republican leadership stands up for them. Those are the crickets from the Republican leadership. Of course, we're talking about <laughs> uh, Lauren Boebert. And the only reason like you're right, like we try to stay positive here. I mean, there's lots of scary things that we talk about, but we want to talk about what you can do about it. And and when it comes to um, horrible, deplorable, racist people like uh, Republican Representative Lauren Burbert, Boebert, Burbert, I don't know. I don't care. Um, there's nothing we can really do except for encourage a Republican Party to censure her or or whatever, which they are not going to do. The only reason I wanted to mention it was because I saw her trending on Twitter and mm-hmm. I immediately thought she said something incredibly racist and hateful. And that's why she's trending, you ding, know. Ding, ding. Yeah. And it, it was just such like Bobert. I'm like, what what horrible racist thing did she say? And then I went to investigate, and in fact, uh, she said some really horrible racist and very dangerous things about Representative Ilhan Omar, 
Can you imagine going to work and one of your colleagues talks about you and to you in this way and uh, and you still like you still have to function and not like no, no, I, I can't back. because workplaces have HR departments and um, and rules about workplace environments and they wouldn't allow that. Uh, and that person would get reprimanded or fired or removed from the workplace. But, you know, it's uh, <laughs> this is the Republican playbook. We talk about it all the time. It used to be a little more subtle than this. Um, and now uh, I think uh, these Republicans feel emboldened enough to just cavalierly yeah. uh, throw their racism around for the whole world to see. Yeah, but just it, say that your colleague's a suicide bomber. Like, okay. And 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 that's, and you get away with that. Yeah. Uh, I don't want to talk too much about it because like you said, it's ridiculous, but, but it also is indicative of the Republican Party right now. It's very important to note that they're not standing against Boebert and her comments. They, they hold them up. Um, they're accepting of them. The Republican Party writ large is because that is who they are. That is really uh, the crux of them right now is to put race and hatred forefront, to divide, to blame others, to keep people from participating in our elections. Uh, that's their platform. It's a platform of hate, and that's who the Republican Party is right now. That's rough. How was your watching, Thanksgiving? Watching her speak, <laughs> watching her speak is like it's it's surreal. Uh, it's like watching like bad improv. It's it's not funny. It's just uncomfortable. God, yeah. <laughs> when they try to get up there and do their shtick, it's just so like, oh my god, it's the worst. Um, last thing I want to talk about uh, was two days ago, this was a headline I saw, no COVID-related deaths in New York City because the vaccination rate there is now over 90%. So this is what happens mm -hmm. when you have high vaccination rates and, uh, you know, incentives to get vaccinated in upstate New York. They're seeing uh, another wave and they have very low vaccination rates in the communities where they're see, seeing these waves. So I'm no scientist. <laughs> Just putting out there <laughs> some, you know, pretty obvious cause and effect. Um, and now that we're talking about an, a new. Um, Omicron. Uh, yes. Um, Omicron. A new variant. Uh, I just think you know, continue to beat the drum for for people who are nervous about vaccinations. It it does make a difference. So, you know, yeah, I um, you know, of course, we're all concerned about this new variant. Um, I I am going to do what Biden said, and and that's be concerned, but not panicked about it, and just uh, be aware. The best thing we can do is get vaccinated and get boosted. The Republicans who are trying to dunk on Biden right now because of a new variant that has emerged by saying he he Biden said he was going to control the virus and he hasn't done it. Um, look in the fucking mirror at what you're doing with your constituents and the people who you are excusing from getting vaccinated and protecting the lives of other people around them. Anyway, what's our reason for hope? 
No. <laughs> I was just thinking, remember last week, my reason for hope is like, it feels like we're going back to normal. <laughs> and then Omnicron. But, you know, again, I don't want to get too wrapped up in this new variant yet because there's so much we don't know about it. So I, I'm, I'm hopeful. I don't think things are going to close down. I think, you yeah. know, if you're fully vaccinated and boosted, then we can expect to be in the same place where we are right now. I do want to talk about our hero of the week, though. We touched on on this a a few minutes ago, but my hero of the week really is Jackson Women's Health Organization staff, supporters, patients. As I was saying, in all of Mississippi, there is one place to get an abortion. And the people providing this vital service are being flown in from out of state They, because of the laws in Mississippi, are forced to lie to women and tell them that, you know, having an abortion could cause them to have breast cancer later in life. Mm. It is a flat out lie, but the law requires that of them. Um, The staff that works there to, to take care of these women. I can't imagine, especially with SCOTUS hearing this case, um, what sort of pressure they're going to be under. I'm betting that many people listening to this have had the experience of trying to walk into a women's healthcare provider um, and being harassed, right. harangued, screamed at. I'm sure many of the people listening to this remember when clinics and providers were the targets of of terrorists. Um, That is not that long ago. um, And um, moments like this are uh, reminders of how dangerous but important this work is. So um, for the people at the Jackson Women's Health Organization and everywhere, thank you for the work that you do in spite of that danger. You are my heroes of the week. Love that. Thank you for highlighting that. I didn't realize there was only one abortion provider in the entire state of Mississippi. So that's incredible. And now they're taking on patients from Texas too because right. of because of the law here and and it, it's it's drivable for portions portions of Texas. So just a, a tremendous burden that they have to to carry. Yeah. Well, let's talk about this week's to-do list. So as we are recording this, it is Giving Tuesday, Mm -hmm. and I know your email inboxes are flooded with opportunities to give today, and there are many worthwhile places to donate for sure. Um, But I'm just going to pile on with that since uh, it is Giving Tuesday and uh, ask you to make a donation to Swing Left. We don't often ask for donations straight to our organization. Uh, We do fundraising for candidates that goes straight to the candidates. Um, But obviously, we we have a lot of work that we do year-round in an incredible staff of dedicated organizers and political experts that help us do this work. Um, It helps keep this podcast going and everything. So so I'm just going to ask everyone on – I know this releases on Wednesday, but – We'll call it Giving Wednesday uh, to uh, hop over to swingleft.org and consider making a donation. As a fundraiser, Giving Tuesday is the vein of my existence. (laughs) But as a human being, I love that there is a day where everyone 
commits to generosity and and helping each other out. So it should be before Cyber Monday, though, because everyone's <laughs> like spend all their money at Amazon and then Giving Tuesday comes out. around. They're like, well, I got like five bucks left over to give to the elephants. All right, I'll do that. You know, <laughs> uh, well, and now we've got we've got what are we going to call this Giving Wednesday? Keep, left keep giving Wednesday. Keep, I don't keep know. giving Wednesday. I like it. <laughs> uh, so keep giving. Um, we're going to be back uh, with an interview with Laura Friedman, and then we'll be talking about our reasons for hope. So stick around. Laura Friedman is a California Assembly member and environmental leader who currently serves as the chair of the Transportation Committee and chair of the Bicameral Environmental Caucus. She recently attended the UN COP26 conference. I'm excited to hear all about that. Assemblymember Friedman, thank you so much for being here and happy Hanukkah. Happy Hanukkah. Thanks for having me here. I'm excited to talk to you about all things environmental and hear about COP26, but before we do that, um, I would love to hear just a little bit about how you got started in politics, because uh, you have sort of a unique road into public service. You began your career as a producer in Hollywood. Uh, what made you jump into politics and run for office? Yeah, I worked for over 20 years in the film industry. I worked in New York for four years and then for at least 15 years in Los Angeles. Uh, working in the industry was what brought me to Los Angeles. I had got a job at Paramount Pictures and came out from New York to take that job and really loved it here and was not particularly politically involved, although I always voted in every election and I was a member of uh, the Young Democrats, you know, paying dues and mm -hmm. um, going to some political events, but never thinking of myself as being a potential candidate for anything. My husband, who had been a film editor, went back to UCLA and became a landscape architect. And mm -hmm. I felt like I went to landscape architect school with him because he was always bringing all of his projects home. And I had been getting very interested in art and design and became very involved with the LA Conservancy with their modern committee, mm -hmm. known as Modern, doing preservation work for post-war resources all around Los Angeles, like the Cinerama Dome. We were very involved in keeping that from being hit by the wrecking ball, the Tower Records building, um, the case study houses in Los Angeles, some of the Googie coffee shops mm. uh, around L.A. So that got me a little bit involved in politics because I was speaking in front of city councils all over L.A. County about preserving resources. And then when a position opened up, a, a volunteer position in Glendale on the design review board, I decided to go and apply for it. And because of my um, involvement in preservation, I was appointed. So I spent five years serving on that board and decided to run for Glendale City Council because there was not a lot of progressiveness on the city council in Glendale at the time. And there hadn't been a woman, there'd only been maybe five women or six women since the city was first founded at the almost the turn of the century. Hmm. And there were just a lot of reasons to, to go on that council. So I ran and won a seat and was on this Glendale City Council serving as mayor for a year for seven years. And then I decided to run for assembly when the seat opened up in 2016. And here I am today. <laughs> well, uh, no hyperbole. I think you know this, but you uh, are one of my absolute favorite assembly members. Um, and I always love bumping into you. And, and the pandemic has really 
put the kibosh on that. But um, <laughs> um, well, thanks, Steve. And and one of the things that I love about you mm -hmm. is is you've really been a leader on the environment, and uh, I've learned a lot from you about that. You've authored bills to establish water efficiency standards uh, and strengthen environmental sustainability. California is often a test tube for our progressive policies, and we lead on climate in so many ways. What are we doing right in California right now, and where are we falling short? I do think that we have been a leader in the U.S. in terms of our low-carbon fuel standard, um, moving people away from dirty uh, fuels, and also our renewable um, energy generation goals and our uh, quick adoption of renewable energy. Although I wouldn't say that we are the, you know, the, the real standard bearer in terms of renewable generation. Believe it or not, Texas has more renewable generation than California. But we do have a regulatory environment that does foster a real phase out of polluting power generation. So. I do think that we have done a lot right. And certainly when it comes to air quality, California leads the way with CARB doing a lot of work and having a lot of teeth in their regulations, which is why we don't see as many polluting industries in California as we do in many of the other states. And, and what's so, CARB? CARB is the California Air Resources Board. Okay. So they are the regulators who make sure that our clean air standards are upheld and they have a lot of uh, regulatory tools at their discretion, and they uh, monitor air quality and monitor polluting sources, stationary and mobile fuel sources, and have the ability to um, uh, push those different industries primarily towards um, using technologies that are less polluting. Got it. And then we've just been a leader in terms of joining with other subnationals to create our own MOUs and our own treaties to do the work that in many cases the US government has been unable to do or unwilling to do. Six years ago, Governor Brown founded the Under Two Coalition with Baden from Germany, one of the states from Germany, bringing um, these two subnational governments together to reduce GHG emissions and to limit climate change to no more than two uh, centigrade. And we also have just this last year Governor Newsom has set forth very aggressive goals about phasing out the sale of combustion engines in cars. And I realized how impactful that has been when I went for COP26 last month and had so many different countries and industries talk to us about that, about how meaningful that was to tell the industry, the audio industry, where one of the larger largest uh, purchasers of automobiles mm -hmm. is going, that's California, yeah. and also to show other nations that that can be done. So we've done a lot of very big, bold, meaningful uh, steps in California, but of course, there's a lot more work to do. Yeah. Um, on the federal level, uh, we just passed Biden's infrastructure package, which does have a lot of climate investment. Um, and we are on the verge of passing the reconciliation portion of the Build Back Better agenda, uh, which contains the largest investment in protecting our planet ever, full stop. Are you optimistic about the impact of this legislation? I do think it will be helpful. Uh, I am certainly not an expert. Um, I really have been going by what a lot of the stakeholders have been telling me. Mm -hmm. I think that there was more opportunity to make more meaningful change in terms of a much faster ramp down of polluting power generation, namely coal. 
uh, and but there are there is an extension of tax credits for renewable generation that the renewable industry thinks is a game changer. So that does give me hope. I went to Portugal uh, also last month and was on the trip with. um, (laughs) uh, Yeah, that that was it. Those two trips. That was pretty much it for the last year and a half. But um, uh, but this was a trip that had been planned for two years ago that because of COVID was postponed. And we went to see offshore wind, floating wind in Portugal because California is looking to do offshore floating wind in Northern California. I think it's a hugely promising technology for the US. It's widely deployed around the world. Um, Wind turbines are everywhere in Europe. And so I was on this trip with uh, the major renewable power generators in the US. And it was really fascinating to be on a bus with them a lot and to just hear their conversations Mm. Uh, as well to be a fly on the wall in, in terms of what they argue about and talk about. But they all agreed that the Build Back Better and the Biden infrastructure package has very meaningful tax credits for, for renewable generation that really give it a leg up above a lot of the dirty generation. And they do think that that's going to help them get a lot more renewables into the grid all across the United States. Well, that sounds very promising and exciting. Um, so speaking of being a fly on the wall, uh, I'm excited to hear about COP26 and your experience there, what was that like, first of all? Like, can you give us a little uh, behind the scenes of what that conference was like? Sure. So it was my second COP. My first COP was in Germany uh, two years ago. It was during the Trump dark years. And so the U.S. did not have a presence. Although in the end, Trump did send two representatives of his his, to represent his administration. They were both representatives from the coal industry. (laughs) So you can imagine how that went over. It was really an FU to the international community, to the COP. Uh, yeah. It was embarrassing to be there as a United States representative, to not have a U.S. presence. Uh, but being from California did redeem us because the rest of the world knew that California was a resistance state. Mm-hmm. And so we had a warm welcome wherever we went <laughs> a couple of years ago. Uh, this year was very different. This year, the U.S. was there and their motto was all in. The U.S. was all in, so it was a really great way to signal that they were coming back. And besides the U.S. government representatives, U.S. industry was extremely well represented with major uh, industry there. And, you know, you can kind of take, well, first, I'll, I'll tell you my thoughts about that in a second. But what the COP is like is it's extremely overwhelming. So take any trade show you've ever been to, multiply it by maybe 20, although I don't know, you know, all the trade shows in the world, and then bring in people from all around the world who are all speaking different languages and dressed in their native clothing. Yeah. Wow. So there's a real international feel about it. Um, there is a very large amount of protest community there mm-hmm. as well. So inside and outside, you have a lot of NGOs. You have a lot of just grassroots activists. There were protests in the streets pretty much every day during the COP. Um, it was in uh, Scotland, and it was a little bit uh, uh, confusing. It was confusing how to find your way around. Huh. It was wintry and wet and cold and rainy and dark uh, in a strange country. Although they they not good for for the California contingency. Yeah, I'd say they spoke English a little bit less well as the Germans had two years ago, you know, in Scotland, <laughs> but we managed to figure it out. Um, but we were staying in Edinburgh, so every day we would wake up and take an hour train, wonderfully pleasant train ride from Edinburgh uh, into um, Glasgow for the COP and then try to find our way 
through the very busy streets, say, you know, by bus or by walking wow. a couple of miles to this very remote location where they have the conference. Now, the conference was scattered over several buildings uh, that were actually not that close together. So, and plus, the buildings themselves are very large. In part of the building, which I didn't go to, you had the actual UN negotiations happening where, like you see on television with a setup of a big horseshoe and a lot of members getting up and making speeches. That's the official part of the COP. The bigger part of the COP is the part where there are the different pavilions from the different countries. And we were able to kind of walk around that part of the COP and go into the different, they're called pavilions, but they're basically stands for every country Hmm. where they have not just presentations about what they're doing about climate, but also usually panels all day long from representatives from their own industries, from their scientific community, from really whatever they want to present. And so you can go and sit and listen to a, through a translated headset presentations from all over the world in every one of these, you know, literally dozens and dozens of pavilions. There was another building uh, called the Green Zone, which was filled with tech innovators, universities and NGOs. Uh, with whatever they wanted to present about um, global warming, whether it was a robot that picked fruit or I saw some amazing hydrogen-powered farm equipment, tractors and other heavy industry powered by, you know, zero emission powered by hydrogen. Wow. I saw the latest electric buses, the latest hydrogen fuel cell vehicles, uh, just all kinds of different innovations from around the world and also the NGOs presenting whatever it is they wanted to present about uh, the environment. So that was the green zone and that was open to the public. That was the only space that's open to the general public. Then there were meetings that took place and we had a whole series of meetings that had been preset. Oh, and then there was also something called the innovation zone, which I um, went to, which was basically a zone that industry put together where sort of different industries and their governments were presenting what they were working on for Mm -hmm. climate. And they also had their own panels there. And I thought the panels at the Innovation Zone were very high quality and very interesting panels. Um, I saw a panel, for instance, on how to do low carbon development. And it was uh, uh, paneled by uh, the government in Singapore was one of the panelists, one of the de- sort of the, the development planning department from Singapore. There was a very large uh, developer of sort of buildings there. There was a, a developer, an architectural firm from the United States on that panel. And that was that was pretty interesting. It sounds fascinating. So it was a place to have some negotiations, to have a, you know, a lot of discussions, to meet with other subnationals, to see what innovations are being presented from around the world, to talk to scientists uh, and to talk to nonprofits and stakeholders and protesters as well. Everybody, you know, came together. There were you know, tens of thousands of people present from all over the world. So it was very interesting. I, I did little videos, little video vignettes that you can see on my Twitter feed. I saw I some of those, yeah. yeah. <laughs> not trying to take your job, Steve. I'm not going to be doing that for a living. <laughs> but it was a nice opportunity to have them speak, not just to me, because these are people that I was in conversation with, but to also let them speak to people in Los Angeles. And I basically just said to everyone, what would you like the people in Los Angeles to know? And let them let them talk. Yeah, it's very cool. That is uh, so fascinating, and it sounds just massive uh, and and overwhelming. Um, you know, we've heard lots of good things uh, that came out of it, but of course, uh, there's lots of protests and and a feeling that the conferences are a lot of talk that don't really translate all the time into concrete 
action. Uh, how do you feel it went overall? Do you feel like there was um, some some good next steps, some consensus to come together? You know, obviously it was very very important that the U.S. was there uh, officially <laughs> this time. But what do you think the outcome was of the conference overall? I am probably not the best person to give you an analysis of the official COP26 outcome. Uh, <laughs> because there's been a lot. I disagree. <laughs> well, you know, I wasn't there to watch it. And I've only learned about what they ended up discussing through reading the press. Right. Quite honestly. Right. It seems to me that it's fair to say that from the environmental position, from the position I have as a mom of an eight-year-old and someone who cares deeply about the planet, it was a disappointment on a lot of levels. It's mm. a disappointment that the decision makers in the world refuse to take enough very direct, very rapid action. It's a shame that we can't, that even this global crisis is not bringing us together. There's such a threat that the emergencies that we're already seeing and the climate crisis is going to have the opposite effect of fracturing us as a, as a planet to create refugees that are seen as a burden, yeah. to create wars over resources, to create conflict when we have the chance to use this crisis as a coming together point. And it's a shame that we're not able to do that enough for a variety of reasons. And yet there is still meaningful action that's being taken. There's still an acknowledgement from all of the countries that were in attendance that there's an emergency. Their willingness to do things about it really varies. Uh, sometimes there's a level of feeling that they can't move their public enough, that the, 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 the disruption of their own public is mm -hmm. so overwhelming to elected officials that they're afraid that if they do things like close down all the coal plants, that they'll have a coup or a revolution within their own country because they just can't backfill that with jobs. Sometimes you have countries that are poor and feel that they don't get enough support from first world countries and so are unwilling to take bold steps because they think it should be paid for by the ones who created this problem being the developed world. Right. Sometimes you have countries that, you know, just feel, seem to feel that they they don't care that they care more about their bottom line. You know, there's, there's a whole range of reasons and excuses and blame that, that could go around. So I think that there's a mixed bag. There's some positive things that have come out of the COP. You know, I, I loved the EU's presentations about their uh, carbon tax and their tariffs and their um, rapid deployment of renewables. You know, that's a hopeful sign. It's a hopeful sign. I think that industry was there looking to invest billions of dollars of, of equity mm -hmm. into climate solutions. So yes, there's greenwashing, of course. We know that there are companies that are there that are still polluting and aren't changing their ways. Uh, there are fossil fuel companies that talk a good game, but don't put enough investment into renewables. And yet there are also fossil fuel companies that are the ones that are investing heavily in wind turbines and looking to transition. So it's a mixed bag. And you have to look granularly to see where you take your inspiration, where you get your frustration. <laughs> um, but overall, it's frustrating that the UN, that the, the, the major countries aren't doing enough. And uh, that includes the US. That's not, you know, we're not excluded from that by any means. Yeah. Well, I mean, you said so much there. And, and anytime we talk about the climate crisis, the problem is so huge, it can feel very overwhelming, which is one of the 
reasons why it's so hard to engage people on this issue because it's so existential and so massive. People don't know always where to start. So let's bring it back home right now. And uh, in your view, what are some things that we can do at home in our own homes to make a difference and to be thoughtful about this? Because every little bit helps and, um, and inaction is not an option. Absolutely. So I think that people can feel a kind of paralysis when they think that a problem is overwhelming. Right. And we see that at the national level, the subnational level, and at the personal level. And yet there are things that we can all do because when, when every citizen makes small changes, that adds up to a huge change. And the changes vary. And one thing is I think people need to give themselves license to realize that you know, most of us are not going to live a carbon-free existence anytime soon. Uh, we can only do what we can do. Um, and yet we can still take the steps that we feel that we are able to take in our own lives. Um, they can be small things. You can give up your dryer and line dry your clothing. Uh, I did that in my own house and it was an easy change to make. We, know, we, we haven't had a dryer in my home for maybe 10 years. Um, and you do have a small child. so. Um... And I have a small child and we do, they gener- my child and my husband seem to generate an, an incredible amount of laundry. Um, they say, you know, not using the hot water in your laundry. You know, a Tide actually has been pushing cold washes for the energy um, efficiency savings. And they say their detergents work just as well in cold water. So don't use hot water. Um, we can all look at how we live our daily lives and try to walk and use bikes for those under two mile trips that we take. Um, I recognize that it's not always safe in every place to do that. I've been working on that as chair of transportation to make it safer and more convenient for people to walk and bike places. Um, But that is a step. Uh, You can park once if you're going, you know, to go shopping somewhere and try to do all of your tasks within a walking distance, you know, one time and then go back. Taking that one step further, we can also be willing to allow the changes to the way that we use land in our own cities to enable walking and biking. So what do I mean by that? Be open to road diets. Be open to bus rapid transit going through your own community. Be vocal about that. What do you you mean when you say road diet? What what is that? That means shrinking or taking a lane away from a road to make it safer for pedestrians and cyclists and to slow the traffic down. Mm -hmm. That is a great way often to create safe ways for people to bike and walk to where they want to go. And even if you're not going to be the one to do that for health reasons or other reasons, recognize that other people want to be able to move safely using alternative methods of transportation through their communities and help them. Help them by being an advocate for safe roads and by the physical infrastructure that that entails, even if it means taking a lane away from traffic, even if it means removing parking spaces so that we create better uses of land and discourage car use. Right. One of the biggest changes that we can make is to reduce car dependency. And that means being willing to tell our city councils that we want it to be less convenient to park, maybe less convenient to drive, but more convenient to take the bus, to ride a bike and to walk. Yeah. Because there's going to be a trade-off that we want to allow people to live near where they work and where they shop, which means allow for multifamily buildings in our communities and to allow them to be closer to job centers. That's going to change the way our communities look and feel, but that is the only way to have a truly sustainable California because we know that we are a couple million housing units short. And if we make all of those be sprawl out and sprawl in open space because we won't allow those residents in our 
arc built out communities. Mm-hmm. We're going to have less biodiversity, less places for our wildlife to live, less open space in California, and a lot more cars and a lot more congestion. Yeah. So if we're serious about being environmentalists, we have to look right here at home and the biggest bang we can get for our buck in terms of California sustainability is through land use changes and living more sustainably, living more like they live in Europe, where you have denser city centers and people use means other than cars to get around. I was in Scotland for 10 days almost, and I can't think of more than two or three times where I was in an automobile. Hmm. Every other time I was on a bus, I was walking, or I was in a train. And that's possible because of the way that they have developed their communities and the investments that they've made in active transportation. They have almost no congestion that I saw, road congestion in Scotland, because the entire population uses other methods to get around. And they've built their cities in ways that are conducive to walking. And it's not unpleasant, believe me. I spent every you know t- day that I could walking as much as I could. And it's a wonderful thing to walk through a community where you're walking past shops and coffee shops and restaurants and you have a vibrant streetscape. Yeah. It's more freeing and it's a better quality of life than suburban sprawl. Well, that really strikes a chord with me because, uh, you know, um, I'm very pleased with the push for uh, electric, but, you know, when you see all the freeway expansion happening here in Los Angeles too, it's it's just seems counter to looking towards the future. Like, you know, our Los Angelinos really love their little bubbles that they get to drive around in. But um, but I love walking. I love riding my bike. And, uh, and I love visiting cities that have that set up really well. Like you said, it's really delightful. So um, it's a better quality of life. Um, I know you have to go. I have one last question that we ask all of our guests, and that's what gives you hope for the future? Well, actually, my trip to Portugal and my trip to Scotland did give me a lot of hope. Uh, I, As I flew over Europe, the amount of wind turbines that I saw was really astounding. And the rapid shift to energy that's not just clean and renewable, but incredibly inexpensive mm. uh, is something that I see being embraced in many places in the world. Uh, we can do it here. That gives me a lot of hope seeing the technological revolutions in battery technology, seeing, I was just at the LA Auto Show, and seeing the amount of EV vehicles coming to market is extremely uh, gratifying to know that we can transition our automobiles and our trucks, our polluting trucks, to zero emission vehicles gives me a lot of hope. Biden drove that uh, electric Hummer around. That was fun photo op. <laughs> Biden drove an Equi Hummer. I'm most excited by the class eight heavy industry um, uh, EVs, which, uh, and um, hydrogen vehicles, which are going to take a little bit longer, but there, there's so much investment right now from private industry in all of these technologies. That gives me a lot of hope that, that we're going to have a clean future. The, the question is, will it come fast enough? And will we make the investments that we need, need to move us there more rapidly? Right. And that's the unknown. I, I think we are an extremely intelligent uh, population here in California. We've got an amazing amount of PhDs and labs. And if we put NASA and Lawrence Livermore and our UC system to work on all of these problems and really invested in them, I think that we could move even more rapidly, but it's going to take a lot of money. It's going to take private industry. It's certainly going to take public buy-in and it's not something that we have time to, to wait on. So I have a lot of fear and a lot of anxiety 
but I do have some hope and some optimism. Great. Well, as I said, you're one of my favorite people, uh, favorite electeds, and I really appreciate your time here. Assemblymember Friedman, thanks so much for being on How We Win. Thank you, Steve, and I want to thank everyone who listened. Steve, what's your reason for hope this week? Well, my reason for hope, there's been some, this is sort of like a newsy slash reason for hope, but there has been uh, the appeals court judges, as we were recording this, have been listening to arguments to block Trump's document release for the January 6th commission. They've been very skeptical of that. It looks like that's going to fall apart and Trump is going to be uh, forced to have those documents released. Also, former... Chief of Staff Meadows, who did not show up to uh, his subpoenaed appointment with the committee, um, has reached a deal for initial cooperation. There's a lot of movement there going with the January 6th commission. It's crazy to think that it's almost a year since Mm. that happened. And um, feels like several. It feels like several. And um, and it also kind of in a way time has a way of of normalizing something that really shouldn't be normalized and there are people in congress like let's talk about lauren bobert again who uh, have a, a direct culpability and responsibility in that who are still serving in congress so this needs to be at the forefront there's lots of stuff we need to pay attention to all the time i know but um we can't kind of let this slide to the background and my reason for hope is that i'm i'm seeing some action finally i'm really seeing a lot of these people forced to come forward and i'm excited to hear um what justice is is served as a result of that uh definitely a reason for hope and i appreciate the update this um is a story that, you know, it's constantly unfolding and um, it's always helpful to have the reminder that the January 6th commission is continuing to do its work, even in the face of a whole lot of uh, attempts to, to, to block that important work. Right. What about you? Uh, um, so my reason for hope this week is going to be Hanukkah. Mm. Happy Hanukkah to everyone who celebrates. It's early this year, yep. um, which uh, I think that, you know, some people kind of like that it's a little bit separated from, from Christmas. <laughs> um, and what I what gives me hope about it is the focus on a light in the dark and the possibility celebration of of miracles Mm. um and that that light in the dark sometimes we just all need to to hang on to that no matter if it's a little one single candle or a a big bright light i'm living in a new neighborhood and my neighbors seem to be competing with each other on the the light (laughs) business i think we're the only ones with the menorah but uh um, it's very it's very bright around here these evenings, which is which is really nice. So anyway, that's my rambling. I love it. Seasonally relevant. It was it was beautiful. It was beautiful, <laughs> and I and I truly hope that the holidays are a uh, enriching time for people to recharge and and find that light 
for the work ahead. I'm certainly looking forward to spending some time this holidays to do just that. So thank yeah, you and, and look, happy look Hanukkah. For, thank you. Look for miracles. They can be large and small, I think. So that's what I'll be doing. Love it. Thank you so much for joining us today. This is how we win. We win when we all get involved. What's your reason for hope? We want to hear from you. Send us an email at podcast at swingleft.org or tweet to us at Steve and at Mariah underscore Craven. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review on Apple or wherever you get your pods. Share our show on social media. Check out our page at swingleft.org slash podcast. And of course, sign up to volunteer. Consider making a donation on Keep Giving Wednesday. Keep Giving Wednesday, yeah. <laughs> we really appreciate you being here with us. And we'll be back with more next Wednesday. Wednesday.